This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, once again, getting off his sickbed uh, <laughs> through the miracle of scheduling, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Cassensmith. And I want to let people know, Sam, because the the way that scheduling works out for recording and for release of the podcast is that they're going to hear it sound like you have this massive thing that's lasted now for like <laughs> weeks, and it's because you're going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks, so we're recording several episodes in consecutive days so you've only only had 24 hours since yesterday's recording to recover <laughs> yeah through but three doctors later yeah that's the fun <laughs> part is although it's only been 24 hours you've seen now a total of four doctors and three since yesterday that is correct oh my goodness well hopefully I'm feeling good feeling hopeful okay well and the doctor that you just saw we believe is the one that is that is the specialist for your particular uh, inner ear and it, so forth so we think you're going to be okay. That is correct. We have we have good good hope for you but He told me that all the other doctors were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but hasn't each doctor told you that the previous doctor was wrong so far? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. And I'm a fairly scientifically minded guy, and I do listen to the advice of my doctors, and I, Lord knows I take enough medications for my heart issues and everything else. And so I'm not mocking doctors. I love, I, I've been, I'm good friends with a number of doctors, but you, but you guys, you doctors, I'm talking to you, you have to admit it's a little disconcerting <laughs> to do well, something like what Sam has just done and go from one doctor to another to another and be told for the same situation that's happening right now in an hour on oh, that last guy was all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and all of them totally confident. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but then again, I am a unique specimen. You are. You, you, we, we, <laughs> this body needs to be studied. We have figured that no matter what you have, you will test positive for coronavirus. <laughs> no matter what you have, you're going to have a COVID test that says you've got COVID. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. You know, my dad is in a way is kind of like this. My dad is the poster child for side effects. If a medication lists 27 side effects, my dad will have 26 of them. And, um, and, and, and I didn't inherit that part of the gene pool from the family. I'm more on my mom's side, you know, genetically, I think, because I, this doesn't happen to me, but I feel so bad for my father because it, you know, it's like, don't let dad read the side effects because everything that, and, but he genuinely has them. Some of them like a, like a cough and one, it can't all be in his head. So, you know, my father gets every side effect. You test positive for every germ. It's true. It's true. I mean, when we were doing the whole coronavirus thing, you tested positive for COVID three times or something and never had it Yeah, that we know of. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, suffice it to say, we're glad that we have you for another day. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're coming to talk about Peter's confession um, where Jesus asks them, hey, to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there's a very interesting conversation that takes place. But in this passage today, folks, I think there's actually going to be four things that, that we act, we're going to maybe pause and take a little bit of time to talk about because I think there's four different areas that, that will, you know, that when you hear them, you're going to go, yeah, I've always wondered about that. Um, so this is a really great passage. There's a lot of stuff going on in here. So. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. We're beginning in verse 13. Let's jump right in. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, Sam, mm-hmm. that answer from the disciples, that was kind of like the answer you would expect to get from somebody who was a, uh, an observant or, or an educated Jew at the time that knew that. Because doesn't that come from like Old Testament prophecies? Well, some of it, some of it. So, for example, in, in the book of Malachi, one of the, the very last prophecy given in the Old Testament, if you go to Malachi chapter 4, two verses before the end of the Old Testament, it says that the Messiah, before he comes, he'll be preceded by the coming of Elijah. Okay. And so Jews to this day, when they celebrate Passover, they will leave an open chair for Elijah because they're, ex- they're still expecting Elijah to return before they believe the Messiah will come Okay. because they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. Okay. 
We believe John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah because Jesus said so. John the Baptist, we're told when he's when he's in the belly, you know, he's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He mm-hmm. dresses like Elijah. He looks like Elijah. Jesus says he fulfilled the role of Elijah. And so each of these three different people, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, each have um, something about them that makes people go, man, Jesus reminds me a lot of that guy. So John the Baptist, he's he's an ascetic. He's out in the wilderness. He doesn't take any personal privilege, and he's calling the powerful to account. He's calling out soldiers and Herod and the religious leaders and everybody else. And there's a part of Jesus that's calling out the powerful, right? And mm-hmm. so they're like, hmm, maybe it's John the Baptist. Um, then you get uh, some saying Elijah. Well, what was Elijah known for? He's the first prophet of the Old Testament who's doing all these insane miracles. Like, you know, head, he's the first one to raise the dead. Yeah. He's, right. he's multiplying grain and flour. Remember, this, what we're talking about right now comes right after he feeds the 5,000 and then he feeds the 4,000 and then we get to this passage and they're like, oh my gosh, this guy's a miracle worker like Elijah. Maybe he's, maybe he's the one who's coming in before the Messiah. And then Jeremiah, his whole ministry, he was called the prophet of tears. And the reason why he was called the prophet of tears is he went around saying, you guys, Jerusalem is going to fall. This now, this is six hundred years before Jesus. Right uh, when the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem, Jeremiah had been like, "You need to turn and repent because judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem. You know, the a foreign army is going to come and tear all this down." And he's weeping over the fact that his people are so hard-hearted. Now, Jesus, in some sense, has an echo of all of these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing ministry. Like all of them, but what they, what these people miss is he's not John the Baptist, he's not Elijah, he's not Jeremiah. He is the one to whom all of them pointed. He mm. is the Messiah. Mm. Well, and that's what he asks them next. He said, uh, he said to them, verse fifteen, but who do you say that I am? And as we talked about yesterday, the first voice to answer. Simon Peter. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, I mean, Simon Peter. So Peter is the one that always jumps in and answers for everybody. He's the one that's quick with the, you know, with you ask a question, Peter's going to answer. Sometimes he knows the answer, but he's always going to answer. <laughs> um, and I, I believe me, I identify with that because oh, I, I love that guy. It is. I, I abhor silence. If you're not going to talk, I'm going to talk. So mm-hmm. you should talk in self-defense or else you're going to listen to me talk. <laughs> uh, and I feel like Peter was the same way. Someone had to answer Jesus. Jesus asked a question. <laughs> so Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus, in verse 17, Jesus, is, it, this almost seems like a, uh, you know, I don't want to say like a like Jesus was surprised, but Jesus was like, he was he was delighted, I think, mm-hmm. in that answer. I totally agree. He said, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That to me, again, that feels like Jesus is delighted with that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I'm going to park start park right here for a minute because I think mm-hmm. this is one of those things that people will have questions about. Um, a lot of the people that, you know, I, I mean, I was raised, as I've mentioned many times, I was raised Lutheran, uh, Missouri Center Lutheran, by the way, the real Lutherans that preached in German. Uh, <laughs> we were the conservative arm. Um, but we were, you know, we were like Catholic light sort of, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, it's like there was a lot of, of the same liturgical elements and so forth in it, but, I have a lot, I've had a lot of friends who are Catholic. You were raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot, we have a lot of former Catholics that, that go to our church. And, um, this question of Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Catholics have always told me that that's the verse in which Jesus established Peter as the first pope. Mm-hmm. Um, and a Protestant will disagree with that. So can we maybe help people understand? Why that is and why, uh, why our position is different about that from a, maybe a Catholic understanding of it? Well, sure. Like, if you, if you were to read the New Testament Greek manuscripts, when Jesus is, is calling him Peter, it's Petros. And mm-hmm. when he says on this rock, he doesn't repeat Petros. He says Petra, which is, is rock, but it's, it's not the name. Right. Um, and, and so what he's saying, and Peter, by the way, in his epistles will pick up on this. What, what 
what he's saying is, you're Peter. You just professed that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That, this this salvation that comes in me, that's the rock that you're going to build on, right? Mm -hmm. Peter, you just professed it. And so I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, meaning the testimony of the gospel, I am going to build my church. Now, how can I say that? When you get to Peter's epistles, Peter is going to be one of the people who refers to all Christians as living stones that are being built as a spiritual house upon mm-hmm. a foundation, right? Right. Well, these spiritual stones, we're all like Peter. We're rocks that are alive, that are building this temple of God on the earth that's living and active. It moves. But the foundation that these rocks are being built on and and the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians three refers to this as well. That you know he's a master builder and he's building upon a foundation, um, and the foundation is Christ. So that is the or or Peter again talks about Jesus being the cornerstone upon which all things are being built on. So the rock is the gospel of Jesus, and Peter is building upon that. The church is being built upon this rock, mm-hmm. is the idea. Mm-hmm. So Peter is not the rock upon which the church is built. That is a, a bad interpretation. Um, you know, and the whole idea of infallibility. Like, if you're looking at Peter for infallibility, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of, like, he's the perfect reference for fallibility. Right. Um, like, it, it, that's a total misinterpretation of what is being communicated here. Now, one of the things that is fascinating is this does communicate that this church is going to be generational through all ages, and it's going to be built one upon the previous generation upon the previous generation. And so in that sense, yeah, the church is passed on generation to generation, but it's not this specific office like Peter hands it to another individual who hands it to another individual. No, it's generation to generation, the church mm-hmm. um, being built up through the ages. Yeah. Yeah, I've always, I mean, my go-to passage has always been that 1 Corinthians 3, because Paul wrote it, and I have to, I've got, you know, if Paul wrote it, it's where I'm going. Um, But, I, you know, I mean, he says it plainly there. He says, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. It's like Mm -hmm. everything is built on that foundation of Christ. And uh, I think that, I also think there's, it's kind of an interesting thing here, because it's almost like, uh, Jesus is answering or echoing Peter. Like he asks Peter, he asks the group, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus has a, a, a delighted exclamation, mm-hmm. but then comes back to essentially echo Peter. It's like, and I tell you, you are Peter. Like G- Peter said, you are the Christ. He goes, you are Peter, the son of the living God. And on this rock, I will build my church. I feel like there's some, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a three verse chiasm is what I'm getting at. It's like there's mm-hmm. something here where he's almost echoing back to Peter in the same format as Peter mm-hmm. said it to him. Yeah. Um, and I do think, but I, and I mean, and, and I don't want to, boy, if we, if that seemed like an overly simplistic explanation to some of you that are listening that might be Catholic, um, I mean, we could talk about this in a lot more detail, you know, with somebody individually if they have questions about it or something like that. But I really, I agree with you 100%, Sam. I mean, I really feel like that's, that, it is, it's just so clear when you look at the totality of the New Testament, all the other verses that we have where Paul and Peter were writing, you just see it so plainly that Christ is the foundation. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And you, you can't have it any either way. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that's also pointing us to this, and this is a little bit of a kind of a sovereign literary technique. So this might need to be chopped at <laughs> this commentary. <laughs> we'll <But> see. This, <laughs> This conversation that Jesus has brought his disciples into is coming after the first 12 verses of chapter 16. And the first 12 verses of chapter 16 are when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to Jesus and they're like, you know, he's just performed all these incredible miracles, feeding people and walking on water and all these other miracles that are stunning. And they come to him after all this and they say, hmm, tell us, by what sign do you do these things? Like, Show us, prove to us from heaven that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says something to him that he'll repeat again. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, that's going to be important for this conversation that's going on now here in a minute. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was 
swallowed up by a fish, taken down to the belly of the sea, which is the emblem of death, remember? Mm -hmm. And after three days, Jonah prays, you know, he's delivered, and he is spit up on the third day back to the land of the living. Right. It's so Jesus is saying, you want to know how you will know for sure that I'm the Messiah. I have to die, I have to be buried, and I'm going to be risen again on the third day. So when when Simon comes and says, you are Christ, the son of the living God, I love that Jesus responds by calling out his full name. Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's calling to mind that Jonah again, because mm-hmm. Simon's father, literally his name would have been Jonah, Simon, mm-hmm. son of Jonah. And so it's calling to mind that in that, it's this, it's this echo that says, I have to, I have to be, I have to be dead, buried for three days and then resurrected again. That's going to come up when Jesus has to rebuke Peter in a moment because yeah. Peter refuses to believe that. Yeah. I don't think that needs to be cut out. <laughs> I, I like good. that. That's good. <laughs> I think that's absolutely great. Uh, okay. So let's look at then verse 19 because this is the, this verse is also going to stop us for a second. Verse 19, P- Jesus continues. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, my Catholic friends have told mm-hmm. me that this was specifically giving authority to Peter. They've said this is where, you know, that that's Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. And that's how that's why the pope can make these pronouncements that that I, I guess the pope could say you're not going to heaven or something. I mean, he has that uh, spiritual authority in their in their hierarchy. Um, and so I think that this idea of what the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what this binding and loosing is all about is also one that uh People are going to have questions about that. So what are we talking mm-hmm. about here with binding and loosing and keys? Well, it's, it's the same. When the, when the gospel is spoken to somebody, it binds and it looses. And so uh, binding to the law makes it's, it's an accountability. It, it holds you to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a loose, a loosing from it is like you're, you're out of the implications of this legal contract. It's, it's a freedom. And so where the gospel goes, those, those that reject it, they're bound in the law. Um, and those that embrace it are loosed in the law. And so wherever Peter goes, the keys to the kingdom are not, you know, it's not Peter standing at the pearly gates going, I'll allow you in, click, <laughs> turn, key. Well, that's, hey, that's the, those are the cartoons, right? The gates of St. Peter, Absolutely. you know, and he's you know, the guy that judges you coming in the door. Yeah, but Jesus will, he'll totally rebuke that. I mean, right. when, when, when John, and John's gospel, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me and Peter. You know, like, right. no, it, there's, there's no, there's no part of that. He, the gospel alone, is the key to the kingdom. And, and so when you come by the gospel, the gospel is what binds on earth. So the decision that you make on this earth in response to the gospel that the church is commissioned to take to the ends of the earth, the decision you make to the gospel will bind you to the law or it will loose you from the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've always, I, I, I agree with that. And I've also thought additionally that that's kind of reinforced by the fact that, you know, where they, where they tell us, where the apostles tell us Jesus is the cornerstone. They also tell us that he's become a stumbling block, a rock of offense to people who are bound up in that sort of legalistic law-based mm-hmm. mindset. And that in that sense, this message of the gospel, which is it, you know, that it, that it is entirely dependent on what Jesus did. That's something that for them doesn't loose them. It binds them. It makes them stumble. It's like, I can't handle that. I've been, you know, my, my brain tells me that I've got some part in this. I, you know, there's some rules I've got to keep. There's some, there's something I've got to do. This idea of salvation is by grace through faith. I can't handle that. So Mm -hmm. in a way, the gospel becomes something that in that respect can bind people. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it it puts them into that f- that frame of mind of rebelling against the gospel. That's ridiculous. I can't hear that. Mm-hmm. Who ever heard this idea that you know God will forgive me no matter what I do? That's crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And it binds them. I think. Yeah. You know, so and there there is some sense in this, and to which you, you get to Matthew eighteen, and Jesus is going to repeat this same thing, where you know he's talking about 
if somebody sins against you, what right. do you do about it? Well, you go to them and you confront them one-on-one. Then you take a brother or sister and you go and confront, and then you take them to the church. And if if they refuse to listen to the church, it says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, somebody who refuses the gospel. And And then he says something really interesting. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind, he repeats it again, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The you there is plural now. And so where he is in a conversation with Peter, the you in Matthew 16, where we're at today, whatever mm-hmm. you bind, that's right. singular. In 18, it becomes plural because Jesus does not intend for that to be a power of Peter. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is something given to the church broadly, right. plural, you. Right. Yeah. Um, and then in verse 20, and I think that this, this verse here ties into what we just talked about, these two things we just talked about. In verse 20, Jesus says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And I think that somebody who's, you know, following along is like, why in the world would Jesus not want people to know that mm-hmm. he was the Christ? And I'm like, well, First of all, <laughs> the expectations, like we talked about what the expectation was of the prophet that was going to come to be the Messiah, was that that prophet was going to restore national Israel. He was going to get the kingdom mm-hmm. back together, going to get rid of the Romans and, and reunite the ten tribes, and which hadn't been for hundreds of years. They'd been gone. All you had was Judah. Um, so they had done this. They had this expectation, and in John uh, chapter six, I think it is where we where the uh, story of the feeding of the five thousand takes place. Mm-hmm. After Jesus was done feeding them, it tells us that the crowd began to talk amongst themselves, saying, "He is this. Pro- he's the prophet, you know." And Jesus, it said, perceived that they were going to come seize him by force and make him become king like they were going to mm-hmm. actually grab him up and say you're the king uh and then and so because of that he left um jesus didn't want that to happen at this point he mm-hmm. he knew they didn't have the correct understanding that they wouldn't respond well to this idea of hey he's the messiah great let him get rid of the romans let him let him get the kingdom back together mm-hmm. um he had a different purpose this time and and so that's why he's telling them look you know I want you to keep this sort of on the down low, but this whole thing, this idea that, you know, it's after his death and his burial and his resurrection, which is the sign of Jonah, that after that point, Jesus is no longer going to be here. He's ascending back to heaven. He's not, you can't grab him and physically make him king anymore. Now it's time for you to take these keys you know, that at the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, it's like, now you take these keys and you, un- and the gospel goes to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you notice when he said that to Peter earlier, you know, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He doesn't, he, he just notice he kind of pulls himself back and he says, from me, my church is going to go forward and the gates of hell. I love that line. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, and, and one of the historical really interesting things about um, Caesarea Philippi, which is the place where this conversation is happening, is if you go there, there were temples all over the place there. You go to this one specific spot, and there was a temple to Caesar Augustus. There were temples to other gods, but one of the, pla- one of the reasons why it was most famous is it had this kind of abyss. It was this cavern that went down inside this cave, and the cavern went down a long, long way. And people believed that this that was the temple of Pan, which was the god of mischief. And they believed that each night Pan would come out of this deep cavern, this abyss down into the ground, and he would bring mischief all over the world. And then behind this temple is a sheer cliff rock, that just goes up, I don't know, probably, I'm guessing, 120 feet would be my guess. It's a big, big face of rock. And so the interesting thing is, Jesus is in this place, and he's saying, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that would have been the right behind him, conceivably, is the gate of Pan that goes down into the world. And Jesus is using these pagan mythologies to mock them, you know, my church is going to prevail against all the forces of hell and mischief and wickedness. Um, he's, he's rebuking the beliefs of the world in that time. 
Uh, every time you mention Pan, of course, the god of mischief, I'm just immediately thinking about Zamfir, the master of the pan flute. You know, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a thing that somebody my age is going to go, oh, yeah, Zamfir, master of the pan flute. You know, Pan was supposed to have played a flute, right? I mean, that was his thing. Yeah. He played, played a flute. And there's a style of flute that's called the pan flute. It's supposed to be the kind of flute that, that the god Pan played. And there's a Romanian musician, George Zamfir, is a real guy who is the who is the world's greatest player of the pan flute, and in the 1970s, <laughs> when I was growing up on television all the time, they had these commercials for you know Zamfir, a master of the pan flute, and then you hear this guy playing this flute, and uh, so every time somebody talks about pan, immediately I'm thinking about Zamfir. There, I, I don't know. I just want to point out that I think our last three episodes have involved you bringing out some musician from the 70s. Yes. Well, okay. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to look at my picture on the website, you will see that I have white hair and I've earned that white hair. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's like I am I'm a man of a certain age. You know, this this that's what happens. Yeah. But it is funny how these, you know, and, and I tell people all the time, that's how my brain works. And I'm one of these potato, potato, potato squirrel, you know. And so that when you mentioned pan, I was like, Zamfir, man. Master of the pan flute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so <laughs> if I can, if 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 I haven't completely ruined the podcast by this point, um, <laughs> so then uh, back here in verse twenty-one, it tells us that uh, Jesus starts to explain this to them. I mean, he's they were there, by the way, when he told the uh, Pharisees, "You you get no sign other than the sign of Jonah." Mm-hmm. So they overheard that, and then at, you know he's heard, there's all this been going on, but then Jesus stops at this point and says, let me just explain this to you more explicitly. Verse 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then in our last podcast, I talked about Peter going a full dad mode. And Uh this is the point where I see Peter going full dad mode. Verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I, and you know, in just a second, Jesus is going to say, you know, get behind me, Satan, and we need to talk about that. But I want to give Peter a little bit of grace here. I feel like Peter is just like, I I think Peter was probably older than Jesus. I'm going to go with that. I, I, you know, Jesus was 30 at this time in his early thirties at this time. And I'm going to say Peter might have been older, certainly the same age. Um, and I feel like Peter was like, Hey, 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 hey. We're not going to let that happen to you. No, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. It's like Peter was just coming into that protective mode. This mm-hmm. wasn't a thing where he was like, he was protecting Jesus here. I mean, he, this like he he saw himself as some that he needed to take care of Jesus. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that, that's what happened in the garden too, right? That's why Peter was going to pull his sword and and fight off the people that were coming to take Jesus. He he was going to protect Jesus. Yeah, and all of these. And this is what the Pharisees are looking at, you know, show us a sign, show us a sign of your strength, you know, and how you're, you know, so far superior to anyone else who's claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm not going to show you a sign except the sign of Jonah. And then when he spells that out, what does the sign of Jonah mean? He takes his disciples and he says, look, I'm going to have to suffer and and notice like must. How many times he uses that? He must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things. I must be killed on the third day and be raised. Like, and they're going, hold on a minute. That's, that's not the Messiah. Because right. in that first century mind, you have to understand every, just what you said a minute ago. Everybody thought this was going to be the guy who raised up the military and became very David-like and retook the land and, and conquered the foreign nations and did all of this kind of geopolitical kingdom building. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. But I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to defeat death. I'm not going to defeat your military enemy. I'm going to defeat your spiritual enemy. Um, I'm going to conquer sin and death as kind of what he's saying. And Peter's going, hold on a minute. First, I love you like crazy. You're a friend. Far be it from you. This will never happen to you. I won't right. let it. I love you right. too much. But a second part of that is um, it, it's like in Peter's heart, he's saying, Lord, that's blasphemous. If, if you're the Messiah, that could never happen to you. Right. And the heart behind that is, if God really favored you, he would never let you suffer. Don't say that. Um, And Jesus is like, 
wrong. Yeah. You, you've missed it. Yeah. Well, that's what he says in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And, you know, he's not telling Peter that Peter is actually Satan at that point. Yeah, no. Um, but he is, you know, that's the same temptation that Satan used when Satan did tempt Jesus, which mm-hmm. is, you, you don't have to go through all this. You don't have to do this. If you just bow to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, what Jesus is being tempted with is, you don't have to go to the cross. And yeah. in a sense, that's what Peter is saying. The same, you don't have to go to the cross. No, 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 no. And that's the, you know... <laughs> There's a there's a uh, a question sometimes that that, that you, you know, Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him that Jesus did not you know turn away from the cross he he went mm-hmm. to the cross willingly because of the joy that was set before the joy before him wasn't the cross folks the joy no. before him was us was his people was his church he came to die for us it's the relationship with us that's the joy that mm-hmm. was so strong that it carried him to the cross. And Jesus did not want to go die on the cross. No. And, and from that beginning, you mentioned the, the, the temptations that take place in Matthew chapter 4. When, when Satan comes to Jesus, and for the first two temptations, he comes saying, if you are the Son of God. Now, what did, what did Peter just profess? You're you the are Son of God, yeah. The Son of God. Right. And Jesus is like, great, let me tell you what that means. I got to suffer. <laughs> well, what did, oh, what did Satan, the premise of those first two temptations that Satan lays at Jesus' feet in Matthew chapter 4, or what? If you are the Son of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. It's, it's, you know, Jesus is fasting for 40 days. He says, tell these stones to become bread. And basically what he's saying is if God really loves you, he wouldn't make you go through this. Throw yourself down from the temple. Angels will catch you because God would never let you die. Um, and so here you have Peter who says, you're the son of God. And then what's the next thing that comes out of his mouth? And the Lord would never let you suffer. Right. And Jesus goes, ooh, that sounds familiar. Get behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. I know that playbook. When Jesus is on the cross, right? At the end of at the end of Luke's account in Luke 4 about the temptations, it says, and Satan left Jesus after the temptations until a more opportune time. And you're like, when does that happen? Well, here's one instance right here. Yeah. You know, where Satan is using one of his own disciples to kind of try to weaken Jesus' resolve. When Jesus is on the cross, people will be passing by. And what do they say? If God really loves you, if you really are the Son of God, this man claimed to be the Son of God, come down from that cross, you know. And what are they all saying? They're saying, if God really loves you, you shouldn't have to suffer. And Jesus right here is saying that kind of logic that says God does not love people who are suffering, that is satanic. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely is. Prosperity gospel is satanic. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and if they didn't get that message, Sam, um, Jesus <laughs> goes on and explains it. This is a, such a beautiful passage because he explains absolutely clearly to them what it means that he's the Christ. It means mm-hmm. I have to suffer. I have to be killed. I have to, you know, I'll, I'll be raised from the dead. Um, and then, and then they don't, they don't understand this suffering idea. Jesus is going to explain that to them. In verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, If you want to do what I do, you want to walk with me, you want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, again, another famous verse, uh, Mm -hmm. another famous saying, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? Uh, but Jesus is saying to them, if you're going to be my follower, there's, there's a cost to that. Mm-hmm. You know, the cost of your salvation, I'll bear that. But if you're going to be my follower, there's a cost to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, when we go through our, our Discover Rio class, one of the, we talk about salvation and how it comes in three stages. And we may have talked about this on the podcast at some point. Probably I don't remember. Have at some point. Yeah. But the first one, and this is just helpful to get your mind around understanding, because it's it's like, okay, well, if Jesus paid it all, and he's my ticket to heaven, then why do I have to obey? And and this is a helpful explanation of how salvation works, because it's 
there's three stages, if you will, of salvation. The first one is justification. And, and that's just a theological term, but it's helpful in, in these respects. Because think of justification as, as past tense. Mm-hmm. Jesus has saved you from the penalty of sin. You can't go to hell. He has borne the wrath of God. He has paid for your sin. Your, your inheritance is secure in him if you have faith and you're trusting in Christ. Past tense, you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. Sanctification comes along. And sanctification is present tense. It's you are being saved from the power of sin. And what that means, and this is the picking up your cross, this is this is part of it, is it's not only are you saved from the penalty of sin, which Jesus has taken away, but now all of the effects of sin that are in your life currently, the, the ways that it enslaves you, the ways that you're self-absorbed, the, the reason why you can't apologize to your wife after an argument, or the reason why you refuse to be humbled in front of other people. It's because you want to win. It's all about me, 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 me. And sanctification is saying, oh my goodness, I have an unbelievably sinful, broken, self-saturated, inwardly bent nature that makes the entire universe about me. I want God to serve me. I want others to serve me. And taking up your cross is being willing to set your life down to put God above yourself to put others in front of yourself it's a humbling it's 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 setting aside your desires for the sake of god's desires and that's costly yeah but the more you do it and the more you find beauty in your life i mean somebody who's who's been through transformations in marriage you know or friendships or life in general the more you see freedom and distance between who you become and who you used to be a long way in the rearview mirror you find that there's so much more joy and freedom when you walk in this lifestyle, when it's not the me show. Um, and so there's joy and being sanctified through the power of the Spirit that helps you to lay yourself down to live more for Him, which mm-hmm. is a painful process that takes years and will not end until you die or Jesus comes back and glory comes. Um, and then the last stage of salvation is the fun one for me. That's, that's glorification and that's future tense. And it's, you will be saved from even the presence of sin. So justification, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, you are being saved from the power of sin, which is what Jesus is talking about here. And glorification is you will be saved when glory comes from even the presence of sin. And those are helpful categories. Jesus is not talking about taking up your cross. To win your salvation. Right. He's talking about taking up your cross to gain mastery over the power of sin in your life now. Right. Well, and I think that crucifixion to them, you know, crucifixion must have been a shocking metaphor for discipleship. That's this idea that they're, they, they would really have a hard time wrapping their head around it. But as we were just talking about, you know, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He was denying his own self-interest to go mm-hmm. to the cross, but he was embracing the will of the Father. And so that's how the cruci- that's how the metaphor of crucifixion applies to discipleship. The discipleship is this process of denying ourselves, which means that we don't put, as you just, as you said, we don't put our will above God's will. We deny our own will to embrace God's will no matter what the cost is. Yeah. Um, that's the process of discipleship. So when somebody says, what does that mean? Take up my cross and follow him. That, you know, what that means literally is it means that you embrace God's will for your life, no matter what that costs you. That's the process. That's the walk of a true disciple. Uh, yeah. And I think that I think also here when Jesus says for whoever would save his life will lose it. That what that's referring to is, you know, he's saying if you're going to if you're going to attempt to save your life by yourself, you know, if you think you can save your own life, you're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to lose your life, which how do we lose our life? Well, that process of denying ourselves and taking up his cross, you know, and following him. So, so that's the path of a of a believer. That's the path of a disciple, and that is the path that somebody will be on. Who will find their true life? Um, yeah, and one of the things that I love about this, um, when you when you think about this in exchange, when Jesus is saying, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, what is he asking us to do? 
He's asking us to set aside all of the things that cause us misery, which is our self-absorption, our sin, our addictions, our idolatries, all these things that make our lives messier than they are, Mm -hmm. to take up our, our cross, to give our lives to him and to follow him, like with everything we've got. And he's not asking us to do anything that he didn't already do for us. Like, he he goes first. I mean, this is a God who had every privilege in heaven, the praises of the angels, every comfort imaginable at infinite scale, who said, you know what? I will become flesh. I will marry myself to humanity. I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to set aside so many of the privileges of heaven and I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to take up at the cross. Except with Jesus, you know, we're asked to set aside our wickedness in exchange for his righteousness and living after it. When Jesus comes, he's taking all of his righteousness, his perfect satisfaction, the perfect joy of what that meant for all eternity. And he sets aside his righteousness, giving it to us. And he takes up our wickedness on the cross. It's like he got the worst part of this deal and poured himself out. He was all in for us before he asked us to be all in for him. But if the God of the universe looks at you and says, I love you to this measure, I'm purchasing you, I'm paying the penalty, you are mine, come and follow me, I want to be with you, for us to look at that and say, I don't know if you're worth it, like it, it boggles my mind when I think that there's so many areas still in my life where I just I keep denying him rather mm-hmm. than denying myself. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just so worthy of so much more. I think also that uh, what we're looking at in verses 25 and 26, I would say are the two great hindrances to discipleship. If, if he's describing in verse 24, the process of discipleship of following him as a disciple, which is denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Verse 25 is this love. It's like, well, whoever will save his life. Well, what is it most people want? Well, they want a life that's free from discomfort, from loneliness, from, you know, they want a life of ease. They want to preserve or save their life of this world, to make this world as comfortable a place as possible. They live in a pursuit of comfort. And then verse 26 is the other thing. Well, what's the other thing people want? Well, they want wealth. They want power and influence. And those two things, this, this, this desire to, to save your life, to make your life as comfortable and as free from pain and, and trouble as possible, or this thing of gaining the whole world, wealth and power and influence, these are the two things that stand in stark opposition to this idea, to, to the idea of discipleship. And so Jesus is saying, look, you know, you're not going to find your life by try, by making it comfortable. You're going to find your life by following me. You're mm-hmm. not going to find your life by gaining wealth and power. You know, it's not going to profit you. It's, however long you're, you think you're going to have it, that's, hey, we're, now we're back to Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, just you, thinking that you get your whole life, you build all this massive wealth. And when you die, someone you don't even know gets your money. Yeah. Hevel. You remember that word? Yep. Hevel. It's it's like smoke. Everything yep. that you try to grab in this world that you think is going to be substance in your hands, the grave takes it all. Yeah. It's like a cloud. It's like smoke. Just as you're gripping at it, it just goes between your fingers and you're left with nothing in your hand. Yeah. And what he's saying is, Peter, you're, you're thinking that I need to go through this life and I need to build a kingdom and I need palaces and I need armies and I need all this stuff. And I'm telling you, I'm on a mission far greater than that. And I'm asking you, set aside your, your belief that you've got to go through this world building bigger barns and bigger industries and getting bigger bank accounts and more power and more this. Like it's about the soul. You need a solution for the plague of sin. That is your great struggle because the wages of sin is death. When you stand before God, he's not going to examine your bank account. He's not going to examine anything. He's going to look at your soul. And if you go before the Lord boasting that you are worthy of his righteousness, that you are perfect, you're going to be found wanting so yeah. do not go before him boasting in all this mess of the earth. While you have the chance, grab hold of a righteousness that can never be taken away from you. That's what I offer. And that's the case that Jesus is making here. Right. 
And it's so hard because in this life, that's the stuff that's in front of us all the time. You know, we're, we're making paychecks. We're doing this. I mean, it's always right in front of us where the spiritual, you have to set your mind at it. You have to remember it. Nobody wants to talk about the big metaphysical questions. You know, you ask somebody, what's the reason for life? And they get freaked out. You know? <laughs> but what more important question is there to stop and ponder for a moment? Yeah. Like, I, I remember sitting around. I may have told this story before, but I remember sitting around when, when my mom was first diagnosed or was well into uh, her lung cancer, but it was looking bleak, and all the sons came home, and we were sitting around at our breakfast table, and my mom says, what are you most ambitious to leave behind in your life? It was really like a, whoa, kind of a moment. And we went around the table, and all, all my brothers were talking, and a couple of them at that time were not as friendly to faith as they are now. And when it came to me, they were like, I'm the youngest of four, so I always get, I always get picked on. <laughs> but they were like, oh, let me guess what Sam's going to say. They knew it was going to be something about Jesus. And I said, yeah, but let me stop for a moment and think about every one of your answers. Like, I don't love my wife any less than you love your wife. I don't love my job any less than you love your job. In fact, I love my job probably more. Like, but of all this stuff, what I know and what you know, but you refuse to think about is the moment death comes, all of it's gone. Yeah. It's going to steal it all from you. If you really love your wife, if you really love your kids, then you should be desperate to find a way that you and them find refuge forever. Yeah. Something to overcome and triumph over the grave. And no one else has a solution. Yeah. But I know a guy. Mm. <laughs> that would have been a very interesting conversation to be in. Uh, well, we have two more verses here to finish out our passage. Verse 27, Jesus continues and says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And these things, now both of these are going to be, this is my fourth place to park <laughs> because people are going to read this and say, what? I, didn't you just <laughs> tell me that it doesn't, you know, that, but there is a, there is, there's a very real sense in which what we've done is something that's going to matter as we enter into God's kingdom. I mean, that, the passage we were referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 earlier, when we were talking about Christ being the foundation, where Paul's talking about that, Paul is talking about a judgment for believers after we, after we die or after the Lord returns, if we're still alive when that happens, that there's a judgment in which what we've done is evaluated in a sense. It's tested as if by fire. And it talks about the things that are built will be either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. I, th I might call it straw in the ESV, mm -hmm. but I'm sorry, I'm a King Jamesy guy, wood, hay, and stubble. But the idea is that those things represent temporary things, um, whereas the first three, gold, silver, and precious stones, those are things that are either purified or formed in their in their essence. Precious stones are formed under heat and pressure. And so when the fire tests them, the temporary things are burned away. And for some of us, it's going to be a big bonfire. and There's not going to be a whole lot left. But Paul says, but they themselves will be saved as one who's going through a fire. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a judgment that we will all face where it tells us that if the things that we've built on the foundation that is Christ, if the things that, if we do things that are for the kingdom, that are eternally minded and eternal in purpose, and those things will remain, and then we will be, we will receive reward for that. Um, now it also tells us that we're going to get these crowns and cast them at the feet of Christ. <laughs> it's like, which, because we're going to understand in that moment of perfect clarity where all that stuff came from. It didn't come from us. But still, there's this process of judgment and reward. And then there's also a judgment that those who are not believers will face. Um, so is that, do you think, what's going on here where he says, then he will repay each person according to what he has done? Yeah. I, I, when I read this, this is one of the verses that I, I wished I had a better grasp of, honestly, because I, it's, it seems like it's talking about the final judgment to me here. Right. You know, he's going to repay each person according to what he's done. The, the part of this passage that gets the most questions is when he says, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
And so the question then becomes, you know, well, hold on a minute. Like, they all died. Yeah, (laughs) You know, they're all dead and gone. And so, like, I think, and the the position that I hold here is Jesus is talking about um, two different things. One is the repayment for each person's works. You know, he's talking about everybody is going to have to stand under judgment. But then he says, some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom— uh, people see that as being Pentecost, where you know the glory comes down, the, the provision of the Spirit is given to the church, mm-hmm. um, and the glory is now coming in the age of of Christ and His kingdom as a good uh, um, dispensationalist would probably call it. Yeah. But in some sense, the church is now moving forward. The kingdom of God. You know, when Jesus comes, what's His message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, mm-hmm. and here's the Son of Man coming to inaugurate it. And so at Pentecost, you have the inauguration. I mean, Jesus in his resurrection brings it about, but then when the Spirit comes and comes into the apostles to live in them and through them, now his kingdom is fully at work advancing into the world. And I think that's what it means. Yeah. Some of I, you are not going to taste death until after that happens. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, I agree with that also. I think there are two different things being talked about there. Coming with his angels and the glory of his father, that didn't happen at Pentecost. He didn't, no. Jesus didn't show up with a bunch of angels and the glory of the father. That would, someone would have made a note about that in Acts chapter two. Been, <laughs> oh, and by the way, Jesus showed up with a bunch of angels. So the fact that it says that he's going to come with his angels and the glory of his father, that's a thing that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Um, but the son of man coming in his kingdom, I think that that's talking about the kingdom coming. And mm-hmm. I, and I believe that has happened, that the kingdom of God is here and is in us. Mm-hmm. I also wonder though, because, and, and we're stopping here at verse 28 because that's what the little scrap of paper says we're supposed to do. But remember, it's, <laughs> Matthew didn't write it that way. It just continues right on into chapter 17. And the first thing that happens in, in chapter 17 is the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. It's How where. How many minutes do we have? <laughs> not because enough. these are totally related they're absolutely related but we but we've got uh, you know uh, depends on depends on whether you want an hour and a half podcast or not we're at about 50, right, ha- we're at 55 minutes all right watch this okay sam sam loudmouth okay, long talker jr <laughs> because i think it, i think it has to do with the amount of transfiguration no doubt because yeah. this whole thing is this conversation where everybody's expecting the messiah to be someone who builds himself up and takes all this privilege and power and wealth and peter can't understand that he's possibly coming to suffer and it says after six days then peter or jesus says okay my inner circle peter james and john come with me and he takes them on a journey and they go up on this high mountain that's up in the north and it's exceedingly high and i want you to listen to what happens they're exhausted so peter james and john are falling asleep all over each other and then uh, they wake up and transfigured before them is jesus and his face is shining like the sun his clothes are beaming white as light Moses and Elijah are there, and they're talking about his exodus, that he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem, meaning his death and resurrection. So they're talking about the cross, which is kind of amazing, especially coming out of the series on Elijah. Here you have Moses and Elijah, who are the two prophets that talk to God on a mountain. Hint, hint, who are they talking to? They're talking to God again on a mountain. And what happens, Peter's like, oh my goodness, we need to build three tabernacles for you because you all look so divine and amazing and you're glowing. And then a bright cloud comes, overshadows them, and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And in doing that, he's combining three messianic prophetic words from Psalm 2, this is my beloved son, um, with whom I'm well pleased comes from Isaiah, and listen to him comes from Deuteronomy straight out of Moses' mouth. Listen to him. I'm going to give you a prophet who's like you. You shall listen to him. They're all talking about the Messiah. God combines that in one statement with three clauses. It's like he is the Messiah. And so then the, the disciples fall on their face. They're terrified, and Jesus touches them and says, rise and have no fear. There it is again, have no fear. Mm-hmm. So And then he says the same thing, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So here again, you have Jesus saying, don't tell anyone. Right. Which is like, you think of Jesus, it's like, go tell it on the mountain, right? But right. here twice now he said, don't tell anyone. I think the reason for that is, if people had assumed that Jesus 
is who he just showed them to be. Oh my goodness, look at all this glory. Look at all this amazement of who he really is behind this veiled humanity. Like, look at who he is. Oh my goodness, he's so beautiful and powerful and amazing that I can't even look at him. I fall on my face. If people knew that, they would chase after him with because of what he his glory. They would want a piece of the pie. They would want more rich and power and all that stuff. And Jesus wants to show his people that the way to glory is through a path of suffering. Mm-hmm. That that the the high point of the mountain comes after the valley. The cross comes before heaven and you carry your cross, Peter. And so what happens here is all of the details of the transfiguration are deliberately told to be an inverted picture of the cross. It's really pretty awesome. Mm. So think about this. He takes the three disciples, right? Peter, James, and John, and they're all falling asleep. When else do you find that happening? In the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane. The night Jesus is arrested, he takes Peter, James, and John into the garden. What does he ask them to do? Stay awake with me. Stay awake and pray. Right. And they can't. They're falling asleep, right? And so they wake up the final time and they arrest him and they take him across. They put him, take him across the Kidron Valley. They put him through his kangaroo trial and they're spitting on him and beating him and slapping him. And the Romans mock him and scourge him and crown him with thorns. And then they take him to another mountain. And I want you to get the imagery here. On this mountain, you have Jesus again, except on this mountain, he's not flanked by the two greatest prophets. He's flanked by two thieves. Mm-hmm. His clothing is not radiant and beaming. He's naked in shame. Uh, he's, his face isn't shining like the sun. In fact, the whole land has gone dark. God isn't booming with a voice saying, listen to him. Instead, God has turned his face away because Jesus has been cloaked in our sin. The people, you know, Peter, the audience isn't saying, oh my gosh, we need to honor him by building tabernacles. All the people are are walking by hurling insults at him. And so every way that you can imagine the details of the transfiguration, which is his glory, it's what he deserved, he goes to the cross first. And it's all inverted. And Jesus is going to take the cross And from the cross will come his ultimate glory. And I think one of the reasons that he shows them the transfiguration is to say, this is who I am. Right. Know that no grave is going to take this from me. Right. Know who you're trusting in. And so we, on the other side of the, the resurrection, we know who we worship. It's this God who speaks universes into existence, who shines like the sun, who's, who's this unbelievably radiant God of righteousness. This is who we serve. And when you see him, Peter writes in one of his epistles, I saw his majesty on the mountain. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's like I saw who he really is. This is why I've given my whole life to this guy. I'm willing to carry a cross because I know who my master is and I know what he does with crosses. Mm-hmm. I will follow him. Yeah. Well, that's a good word, and I think it's one we're going to end on. Uh, and whether they, uh, I, I'm not sure if we're covering the, <laughs> the Mount of Transfiguration in this series or not, but we're we, not. We did it today. Uh, that's why I, I wanted to do it. Yes. <laughs> well, I do. I, those things are very clearly related. Um, you know, and that, and folks, if you just, what Sam was talking about earlier, where, where did Jesus say that Elijah was John the Baptist? Right here. If you just go on and read a little bit past that, that's where he tells them, Hey, Elijah does come. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I tell you, Elijah has already come. And the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So, um, I tell you, there's times when I just wish we could just, Go through these books like the entire book, just mm-hmm. one, you know, because there's so there's so much stuff in in all of them. It's wonderful. Yes. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this week. Uh, that uh, you're going to continue to follow along in this series as we study the life of the Apostle Peter. Uh, these messages are available through our website at riavistachurch.com. You can find our sermon library there. Uh, keep up with all of the messages being preached at church, as well as continuing to listen to the podcast. You can find all the back episodes of Out of Water at that same website, riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. Or you can get the whole thing on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. 
or in the media tab on our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Uh, we'll be back with uh, another in the series, Life of Peter, and uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Okay. I missed six text messages from my wife. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.